This program is brought to you by the Hawaii Chapter of the Society for Conservation Biology, with assistance from KTUH. SCB Hawaii offers opportunities for direct conservation action through our Education and Outreach, Policy, and Science Communications Committees. To learn more about these opportunities and to join our chapter, please visit www.hiscb.org. Membership is free for students and $10 for professionals. You can also join the SCB Global Organization at www.conbio.org. That's C-O-N-B-I-O.org. Mahalo. Welcome back. Welcome back to another episode of Conservation Talk Story. As always, I'm your host, Max Bendis, resident plant and soil scientist and conservation enthusiast. We have a really great episode in store for you today because we're going to be talking about one of the most beautiful, most culturally important, and most endangered and threatened groups of species on the islands of Hawaii today. And those are our native land and tree snails. At one point, there were approximately 750 different species of these snails across the Hawaiian Islands. A spectacle of adaptive radiation and the evolutionary processes that shape these islands. These snails, also known as jewels of the forest, come in a wide array of colors, sizes, and shapes. From conical to flat-shelled, from brown to beautiful rainbow multicolored, some of these snails can even be as small as just two millimeters. That's smaller than the nail on your pinky finger. So today we're joined by one of the preeminent scientists in the field of snail conservation. Dr. David Sisko has over 10 years of experience working in the conservation of our Hawaiian snails. He earned his master's and doctorate in zoology right here from the University of Hawaii and has been the coordinator of the Snail Extinction Prevention Program since its founding in 2012. Over the 10 years David has spent as the coordinator for SEP, he's developed a deep emotional connection to the snails that he works so hard to protect. And he has shed literal blood, sweat, and tears for the sake of these snails. I thoroughly enjoyed my conversation with David, and I think that you will too. If you'd like to engage further with David or the show, or if you have ideas for episodes or topics that you want to hear more about, please reach out to us on Twitter, at ContalkStory, or you can email us directly, ConservationTalkStory at gmail.com. And with that, let's start the episode. Okay, there we go. We've officially started recording. Welcome to the podcast, David. Thanks for having me, Max. It's a pleasure to be here. Yeah, absolutely wonderful to have you on, David. Um, I, I, One of my colleagues at the Society for Conservation Biology, Melissa Price, she has talked about your work quite often, and she's also a, a big snail lover uh, and a staunch conservationist. So it's probably been too long uh, to not have you on the show based on all the nice things that she said about you. But today, David, we're here to talk about snails, uh, our native land snails and their uh, 
See, I told you I'd have a hard time today because I was low on sleep. But that's not a problem because this is a super casual podcast. But today we're here to talk about snails. Hawaii is full of these beautiful endemic land snails basically across all the islands, but they are in peril from many, many different types of threats, uh, from invasive species to, to land loss um, to just, you know, the, the issues with having a low population and the struggles with bringing a population back from the brink. Um, but before we get into all of the, so to speak, nitty gritty about snails, I want to take some time to get to know you a little bit better, David. Um, so I'd, I'd love to hear from you. First of all, the question I ask everybody, what kind of scientist are you? And why did you pick that kind of science among all of the millions of types of science you could pick? What kind of scientist am I? Um, the answer is I'm not entirely sure, but I think I'm a conservation biologist, or at least I identify as a conservation biologist with a specialty in um, malacology or the study of mollusks. Um, but, but yeah, I mean, I, I went to undergraduate for um, biology and then um, graduate school for zoology, and I studied snails in, in graduate school. But why, why snails? I mean, there's different types of mollusks, uh, I would imagine. Uh, but snails especially caught your eye. I mean, was it your experiences here in Hawaii that did that for you? Or did you have interest in snails, you know, before you moved to the islands? Yeah, the, um, it's, it was kind of just random. I, so I, I was really interested in conservation. I, as an undergraduate, I happened to... Um, to get into an internship program where I had a summer stipend that I could take with me into to any research laboratory. And um, I went to undergraduate at Fresno State at the, um, in, in California. And I had a professor who had gone to school at the University of Hawaii and had some connections there. And I came to the University of Hawaii to work with a different kind of invertebrate, some marine invertebrates. Um, but the but Dr. Michael Hadfield, my academic advisor, also studied tree snails, and I happened to be able to for for the summer that I spent out here on my internship, I got to work with some tree snails, and their story is really compelling. Um, their plight is really compelling, and they're just really interesting animals. And I've always just been really interested in invertebrates in, in general. So. Um, so it's kind of just happenstance. I, I kind of fell into it. And then um, after my internship, I um, applied for graduate school and um, kind of begged Dr. Mike Hadfield, <laughs> if I remember right, to take me on as a student. And, um, and he happened to be able to take me on studying tree snails. I think it's really interesting that you just sort of happened to fall into this work with snails. You know, I, I had kind of a similar situation happen to me in college. You know, I, I thought I wanted to be a neuroscientist and I was all interested in, in brain chemistry and psychology, uh, but I didn't get into the neuroscience class that I signed up for. So I wound up taking plant biology and completely fell in love with the things. And so like over a decade later, here I am in Hawaii as a plant scientist, you know, working in conservation as best I can. Well, yeah, I mean, these little moments in our lives, they go on to shape the entirety or the entire rest of our lives. It's, it's really interesting, uh, these similar experiences that so many of us conservationists seem to have. Uh, speaking of similar experiences, actually, 
I found through, you know, my conversations with my friends and also through this podcast that most, most of us in conservation uh, and most people actually who have this deep connection to the land and really care about environmentalism, they have, you know, concrete experiences or like uh, moments of exposure that they can point to in their past, that sort of like open their eyes to the natural world or sort of made them realize how much they enjoy nature and animals and, and plants and that kind of stuff. And so I was hoping you could share some stories from your past about your connection to nature and, you know, the things that brought you to love and appreciate it. Yeah, I was probably doomed to be um, involved in, in science or biology in some way. So I, I was really lucky and I grew up in the mountains in California. So the, the foothills above Fresno. Um, and so I spent a lot of time outdoors, um, but my dad was a science teacher uh, at the elementary school and junior high um, in our small town. And my mom worked for the Chaffee Zoo in Fresno. And so we, we had lots of pets and I was always interested in animals. I was the weird kid that would bring snakes home in their lunchbox or frogs and had an ant farm. And um, my parents always encouraged that and supported that. So yeah, I was just kind of a weirdo that was always into animals. Um, but I think growing up, um, my mom being active at the zoo, the, the zoological gardens, I, I think I just grew up around a, around conservation and um, that, that kind of mentality. And so it was just real natural for me. I'm trying to think of other times in my life that were like really concrete. Um, I, um, in, in college, I, I was lucky and I was able to participate in this program called Student Volunteers. And I, I went to Australia for the summer to do participate in some conservation. We, we were monitoring seabird, rare seabird nests and outplanting thousands of plants. And so that, that really shaped me. That was actually the first time I'd um, ever flew on a plane was flying to Australia. And um, it was the first time I had been off the continental United States. And um, we were, it just really opened my eyes. I really enjoyed that experience, um, participating in, in conservation efforts like that in a real hands-on way. And so I think that really broadened my horizons, just experiencing a different country and, and conservation that's happening there kind of opened my eyes. Yeah, that sounds like a really cool experience. Um... I mean, ever since I moved here, I have been kicking myself for not moving here sooner, mostly just because I wish I could have gone through the Kuku program, uh, which does a bunch of similar, you know, conservation and ecology training here in Hawaii. Uh, so for anybody listening locally, go check out Kupu. They're pretty awesome. They do some really cool stuff for high school and college, college students uh, to learn about conservation and get cool field work experience. I'm not affiliated with Kupu. I just like the work they do. Uh, but yeah, those types of experiences and programs are really great. Uh, I had a similar experience when I was a kid, uh, but it wasn't any sort of focused conservation effort thing. It was just my parents sort of shipping me off to summer camp every summer. But that involved hiking around in Yosemite. Uh, I also grew up in California, so that's a nice little connection that we got there. But, you know, if I didn't have those experiences hiking around in the woods every summer, I don't think I would have found, you know, this passion that I have for conservation. So these, you know, experiences we have when we're young, when we're growing, it seems like they really do a lot to shape who we grow into. It almost makes sense, you know, uh, nature and nurture together. Uh, anyway, 
we're here to talk about snails uh, primarily. Also a lot of other stuff, but still mostly snails. So I should probably ask you a few questions about those. Who knows? Uh, what I'm really interested in, uh, I've done, you know, an amount of background research on snails, uh, but I still uh, have some questions about the way that snails made it to Hawaii. I know that species, non-flying species usually have to hitch a ride uh, onto the island. So I was hoping that you could, you know, elucidate this or answer this question that I have. How the heck did all these little snails make it to these super isolated islands in the middle of the freaking ocean? Yeah, that's a, a great question. And it's kind of paradoxical. You have these little, very sensitive animals that, that you know, they're really bad at getting around. They're, they're, they, they have to slide around on their own slime. Their bodies are, are real sensitive and, and um, they're sensitive to drying out and um, so how is it that they've managed to colonize all these remote islands in the Pacific? And so the Pacific islands in general, the Pacific region, there's over 6,500 described species of, of land snails just in the, the Pacific islands. So an incredible amount of diversity. And in Hawaii alone, we have over 750 described species of land snails and almost 100% of them, aside from a few weird ones um, are endemic to the island, so they don't exist anywhere else. And so um, how is it that they can they can get here is a, is a great question. So I just wanted to ask, what makes a snail weird and what makes a snail normal? They already seem weird and alien enough. So how can you get even more weird? <laughs> That's true. Well, Island snails are, are, they're not typical. So a lot of them give live birth, for example, which is um, not a life history strategy that is prominent on continental areas where there's lots of predators. So that, that's kind of a, not, not a hundred percent unique to islands, but is, is a trait that makes them a little bizarre. Um, they also have really long lives for terrestrial mollusks on islands. Mm -hmm. Um, our, our acatinelline tree snails, so our large tree snails, can live up to 20 years. Um, so their, their life history strategy is almost like that of a longer-lived mammal or bird. Um, they, they, they give live birth, they, they take a really long time to mature, and they, um, they, they grow real slowly. Yeah, so it's, um, they're, real, they're kind of unique in the mollusk um, department. Yeah. But, um, but yeah, how do they get to these islands uh, is a great question. And um, so snails on a day-to-day -day basis are really not very good at dispersing. You know, a snail might spend its whole life in a little clump of trees um, and, and never venture to, you know, just a, a ridge over or, or a valley over or even, you know, 10 meters over. Um, <laughs> But in geologic time, they happen to be really good dispersers. And, and there's a few reasons for that. One is they can get really tiny. So a lot of the progenitors of the, the species that arrived here are itty bitty, teeny tiny little things that are, are two millimeters uh, or, or less in some instances. And another is they're sticky. And another is that they can estivate for uh, long periods of time. And so what estivation is, it's, it's, um, it's a type of hibernation that mollusks do. So they, they can seal up 
on a leaf or a hard surface and they can slow their metabolism down and they can stay that way kind of in, in, in hibernation for um, potentially long periods of time. And, and so it allows them to, to kind of seal up and potentially hitch rides on things like rafting or, or potentially on birds. That's really cool. So they're, they're essentially like these little bears, but because they're so small, they can like get in and hitch a ride on something. So they sort of crawl up into their little shell and go to sleep. And then when they wake up, they're here in Hawaii. That's, that's what I try to do when I'm on the plane. Exactly. Yeah. Um, so if you think about it, um, Pacific Islands in, in general have a lot of seabirds. Uh, we have seabirds that like Kolea, for example, that, that fly down from Alaska every year. And um, the, the main Hawaiian islands were huge rookeries for, for shearwaters and other types of seabirds that nested up in mountain areas. And, you know, all you need is, um, is one bird to nestle somewhere in Alaska or somewhere else in the Pacific. And some of these snails happen to, to crawl up into the feathers and they hitch a ride. They get a direct flight straight, straight to Hawaii. Um, also, you could imagine um, tsunami events or, or kind of catastrophic events that would wash a lot of material out into the ocean. Um, some of these little snails, if there's enough material, could could estivate and and um, raft all the way all the way here. And so, I think it's probably it depends on the species, but those are two likely scenarios that happened for for most of the arrivals here. Also, really tiny snails during really high wind events can potentially be blown up into the, the air column and arrive here um, via air like that. But um, those are kind of the three three methods. So I, I expected the bird ride. You know, that's a pretty common one for most species here. But the rafting and <laughs> the, the flying, I guess you could say, those are new ideas to me. I didn't realize that snails were the uh, original seafarers for these Hawaiian islands, I guess. Potentially. I mean, we'll never know for certain, but yeah. Um, and in, I'm not sure it would happen for, for like uh, between archipelagos, but, but definitely within archipelagos, there's, there's been studies that have shown that snails can survive passage through the gut of some songbirds that eat them. Wow. And so you could potentially um, see the possibility that a bird would swallow some snails and fly to a, a nearby island and poop them out. And, and a percentage of those snails might actually survive that trip and, and then live another day in a, on a different island or in a different area on the island. So that's another, another way that snails might, might be passed from island to island. That's cool. I, I didn't know that there was an animal that uh, could utilize the strategy that plants have become so well known for. Uh, as a plant scientist, you know, I got to give those snails some respect. That's <laughs> it's not an easy thing to do. <laughs> pass through the gut of a bird. You got to be a it's really not. tough seed in order but to you do got, that. But like a seed, they've got a, a tough shell. And if you're small enough and um, they, so snails make an epiphram, so a mucus seal. They can seal up their aperture, so the opening of their shell. And mm -hmm. potentially, uh, you know, if that if that seal is strong enough, and they can survive the amount of time and the the grinding action of a bird's gizzard and the the acid environment, and they make it through, they can they can come out of that estivation and survive. Awesome. So now now that I'm aware on how snails got here. 
what role do they actually serve in the habitat? You know, in ecology, everything has its role that it plays. It has a niche that it fills. Uh, nature's kind of like a play in some sense. But snails, you know, there's nothing, even mosquitoes, there's nothing that's just sort of a passive uh, actor in these plays. Everybody has a role. Everybody fills a need. What do snails do? Great question. Um, invertebrates in general, I'll just preface, are, are drivers of ecosystem function. And snails are... are invertebrates and they're in that group um so so broadly we have several types of snails here at least um <clears throat> functional types um, we have ground snails that so they're predominantly living on the ground and they're feeding on dead and decaying leaves so they're detritivores and then we have snails that live up on the vegetation and in trees collectively people call them tree snails um, and they're gleaning algae and fungus and, and other microbes from this biofouling community that occurs on all surfaces. And they're, so they're eating that, those, those microorganisms on, on leaf and plant surfaces. And um, they're, they're pooping it out. And so snails have a really important function as um, energy turnover machines and ecosystems. So we have the detritivores and, and we have snails that are, that are eating all this material especially in low nutrient areas, like on mountain summits, and they're, they're pooping um, this material and, and that material is going back into the system. Um, there's some evidence that they, they modify the microbial community on plants, so they're reducing the, the amount and, and potentially increasing the diversity of, of fungus and bacteria on leaf surfaces. And so you could extrapolate that up and, and you could see that maybe they have a role in plant pathogens and controlling different plant pathogens potentially, as well as turning over nutrients. Um, historically, they would have also been a food source for, for other animals, potentially some bird species. We have a caterpillar, that uh, a carnivorous caterpillar here that's endemic to the islands that feeds on teeny tiny little snails. Um, so, so yeah, they, they serve a wide function. And I should say that um, Hawaii didn't have animals like earthworms, and so snails and, and other invertebrates that lived in um, ecosystems and, and detritivore ecosystems uh, were important for turning over nutrients historically. I just want to back up a little bit. The carnivorous caterpillar. You, can, you can't just put those two words together without me having to say something about it. Like So I know, I know that insects... They do all sorts of things. They're crazy. They're weird. They're awesome. That's why we love them. But our carnivorous caterpillar, I've never heard of that before. And I, I pride myself as somebody who knows a lot about plants and animals. Is that, that's not something that's unique to Hawaii, is it? Um, the answer is I don't know, but I think it is relatively unique um, in general. And um, I, I think in general, islands just cause evolution to go in these weird directions. Um, and I think that might be an anomaly. I'm not entirely sure if, if it doesn't occur in other areas, but um, it is definitely a, a behavior, I think, that is um, somewhat unique within the Lepidoptera. It's uh, awesome. I, I just love learning new things about nature. I just love it. Uh, but back, back to the snails. They, they play a really interesting role as detritivores. Uh, obviously, not, I guess not obviously, <laughs> I don't know what I'm saying, but they play a really interesting role as detritivores. That's such an important uh, part of an ecosystem is that that cycling and that recycling, you know, 
I, I find a, a lot of people, they underplay the importance of these types of things, especially with such a diminutive species like snails. I feel like it can be easy to sort of overlook their importance. But luckily, our snails here in Hawaii are super beautiful. Uh, and that helps a lot when you're trying to rally support for these snails. Yeah, and I should mention they, they are um, they are small in size, but the the amount of snails, so not just the number of species, but the sheer numbers of snails that used to exist in the islands is hard for people to fathom, even myself. They occurred from coastal strand habitat all the way up to some of our highest mountain areas, and they were incredibly abundant. And so, well, you know, individually they might be small. They, they, their number, their sheer numbers. They, they had to have a, a really significant impact on ecosystem function, just, just based on how many of them were were here. Um, there are accounts from the early 1900s, the 1800s of some of our large tree snails, just hundreds and thousands of them in single trees. You could, you could ride in horseback up to a. a a tree, there's some accounts from the Waimea Plains on the Big Island where there's a Parchelina species, a large tree snail that used to occur there. And you could you could gather them from the trees like grapes on a vine and fill saddlebags full of shells. And so they they were incredibly abundant, um, which is not the case today. Wow. I mean, with the abundance of snails across the islands, I guess it makes sense that they would have the historical and cultural impact that they have for Native Hawaiians. Uh, I was hoping that you could talk about some of that cultural impact and their importance. Yeah, so um, in I I think it's fair to say that that Hawaiian land snails are some of the most revered invertebrates in the world. Um, and in Hawaiian tradition and Hawaiian custom, snails sang in the forest. They had a voice, and they. I was going to ask you. I was going to ask yeah. you about the singing snails. I'm I'm not Hawaiian, and and um, I'm just. Uh, um, you know, I'm, I'm a, a foreigner here. I've been here a long time. But so most of what I know comes from others who have studied this and are cultural practitioners. Um, so, so what I know is just the very surface of this, but it's really beautiful. Um, a, a lot of the words for snails, um, pupu kaneoi, for example, literally means like singing shell or... Um, and then there's a lot of other phrases. Uh, for example, uh, kanikua mauna means like the music on the mountain or the voice on the mountain. Kani aumoi, the voice of of um, the voice of the night. Kani kanahele, the the voice of the forest or the music of the forest. So so there's all this beautiful um, language around snails, and it all or mostly all of it involves voice. And because of that, um, and because Hawaiians and other Polynesian cultures historically passed on their genealogy and their history through voice, through chant, through music, through stories. Um, an animal that embodies that capability um, turns, turns out to be really important. And so snails um, are important in hula and chant. Um, they, um, if you're a good singer in Hawaii, someone might literally call you a snail and it's a compliment. <laughs> or they might call you, a, you're a kahuli. And um, it's, it would be a compliment where if you called on the mainland someone or somewhere else, you, you called someone a snail, it might be a, an insult. But, yeah, it but here, like a slight. Yeah, but here it's actually a compliment. It means you have a good voice. A quick note for you listeners, since we forgot to actually clarify during the episode. 
You might be wondering, do snails actually sing? Well, unfortunately, the answer is no. The sound coming from the forest was actually made by tiny crickets that hide in tree bark and underneath leaves. There are some other theories, including that the singing was the result of wind swirling around the snail shells, but crickets are the widely accepted cause. So there's just this really um, beautiful cultural connection to the animals. And um, um, historically, lei were made from, from Hawaiian land snail shells, a beautiful lei. Um, and I, I think at, I've read at one point in time, um, wearing a shell lei was actually reserved for royalty, for, for ali'i. Um, and so there's, yeah, there's just different points in time. Um, let's see. Captain Cook received shell lei, like a, a, um, a Corellia lei, which is a species from um, from Kauai, endemic to Kauai. And Captain, Captain George Dixon, another early um, captain that was here, received an Acatinella apex fulva lei. Um, that species, we think, um, is likely extinct or um, it went extinct in 2019. The last known individual died. Um, but that... Yeah, so the, I mean the 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 shell chalet culture was um, very prominent even to relatively recent history. Very cool. So now that we're acquainted uh, with our native snails, I think it's time we start talking about some of the threats um, that they're currently facing here in Hawaii. There are a multitude of threats that native species face uh, on many uh, fronts, so to speak. But I want to hear from you what you think are the biggest threats to our native snails and what you think we can do to help solve those problems and alleviate those threats? Yeah, um, good, great question. So uh, we have, I should say that we have 13 different families of snails in, in Hawaii, over 750 described species. Um, and our my, my colleagues at the Bishop Museum have been involved in a study of the islands to try and determine how many species are left from that 750? And they, so they've they've led the most comprehensive surveys over the past decade, trying to answer this question. And they've surveyed over 1,500 sites across, across islands with the help of a lot of of different entities, including um, our SEP program. And they've come up with some numbers that I think are the most accurate in terms of what's left and what's not. And um, we have we think we have about half of that diversity left. So so half of those 750 species are likely already gone. And due to the pressures, which we'll talk about, um, we have about 100 species facing extinction within the next one to 10 years, given where they occur and, and um, the species in question. So this is critical. These snails are highly at risk. Yeah, this is an extinction crisis that's unfolding really rapidly. They've been in decline for a long time, but the there's some synergistic factors that are happening now that, I mean, they're they're tanking. We're um, we're literally the last people that are gonna be able to make an impact on at, on some of these species. I mean, that's heavy to think about. But, yeah, um, it, it really is. Yeah, and 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 I mean the just the magnitude of loss, it's just, it's staggering. Like, how do you deal with, with an extinction crisis that's occurring, you know, across multiple islands and across landscapes 
these are really diverse species. So it's not all just one type of snail. It's not all just tree snails, our large tree snails. We've got teeny tiny little snails um, that, that are also just as endemic and just as important to the ecosystem that are declining at, at the same rate, but, but no one's really paid much attention to them because they're tiny. I mean, for, for a guy who's devoted, you know, most of his professional career, it sounds like to, you know, learning about and pre- protecting these snails, it must be really emotional for you to watch, you know, this process of them go through, you know, literal extinction. Uh, when you are like out in the field and you're looking for snails, you know, how, how much of your emotions are tied up in finding them? You know, how much does it, does it mean to you to find these populations of snails out there? Because, I mean, for some of them, they are down to like the tens or less than tens for like numbers of individuals. Yeah, it's, um, to be quite honest, it's super depressing. And I, I think most of us in conservation are pretty good at um, compartmentalizing and boxing up, you know, what we see. A lot of, you know, the, the Instagram life of a conservationist is very glamorous. You get to go to really neat areas and work with really cool animals. But there's this dark side that no one talks about. But it's, it's incredibly depressing to watch these animals that you're, you're you know, you've, you're spending your whole career trying to save just disappear in front of your eyes. And um, I've got no shame. I've broken down and cried in the field before. Um, I mean, I, we've had experiences where um, I'll, I'll tell one in particular um, that was just super gut-wrenching. Um, we, we partnered with Dr. Melissa Price. Um, we did a genetic study of Akatsanella lila. I think it's actually the species on your, um, on your, your emblem. And it's a really beautiful species endemic to the northern Ko'olau mountains of, of Oahu. There have been, there's one captive colony that's been in um, captivity for almost 30 years now from one location, started with six individuals. And um, in 2015, we decided to do um, a genetic study to look out at how to best manage the captive colony in relation to two wild colonies that are still persisting. One was persisting in, in really large numbers. They were in a pretty small area, but there were hundreds of snails there. And we went up and we were able to sample, um, I think, 80 snails for, for DNA. And uh, so we sampled DNA. It's a non-lethal um, mm-hmm. technique. Um, but anyway, so, yeah, and we, um, we were able to, Dr. Melissa Price led this study and, uh, we were able to work up genetics for these populations. We started our lab in 2016 and in 2018, we had the capacity and the equipment to go up. I think it was 2018 and we were going to collect founding individuals from these other two populations to ensure we had laboratory backups and one of the populations was completely gone and the other population had three individuals left. And we, we surveyed wow. the site for, for over a hundred person hours. And we're talking about a site that's like as big as your house. It's not a very large site or a couple houses. So I, I mean, it was just gut wrenching. Like we, I, I just felt just so silly that we had spent all this time doing a genetic study. And what we should have been doing is collecting those animals and bringing them into captivity, but we, you know, hindsight, but it was right. really depressing. Um, and I, I mean, I could just keep going on and on and on about similar instances where, you know, the snails that we think still have time and, and they don't, 
and we we were too late or we were almost too late um so so it's yeah it's it can be gut-wrenching work and really depressing work um also really rewarding but but yeah there's it's immensely sad to see to see animals that were once so abundant um just just poof gone were you at all able to determine why those populations went away? Was it, you know, did you see like uh, some of the telltale signs of rat predation? You know, they, you know, I'm telling the audience, they'll chew through the top of the shells. So if you find a little pile of shells out in the, in the woods and they have like a bunch of bite marks in them or a bunch of holes in them, there's probably a rat doing it. You know, invasive species are probably the, the primary stressor for snails. Yeah. Do, you, so do you think that they got got, so to speak? So, yeah, I'm not sure I answered your original question, which was, what are the, the threats? And so maybe I'll back up a little bit. And um, <laughs> so historically, the land change, land, land conversion to agriculture probably had an impact on a lot of lower elevation snails. Um, in, in Victorian times, they were collected for their beautiful shells, especially our large tree snails hundreds and thousands of snails, live snails were pulled from the forest just to, just cause they were pretty and people wanted to collect them. Um, that doesn't really happen anymore. Um, so those kind of historical threats are now have been kind of surpassed by the threats of introduced species. And we, we have a few notable ones for snails specifically, you mentioned rats. So rats are terrible for snails, um, as they are as they are for a whole suite of plant and animal species. They're just bad yeah. in general. There's nothing um, good they do here. There's nothing good. Um, in the 1970s, I believe, Jackson's chameleons were introduced mm. to the islands inadvertently through the, pet, through the pet trade. They're on all main Hawaiian islands now, and they're very, very bad for invertebrates in general, and they depredate snails. But the, the most... The, the most insidious introduced species is this, um, another mollusk species. And it was, mm-hmm. um, it's the rosy wolf snail or, or Euglandina rosea. And um, it was introduced here from Florida and it's a carnivorous snail. So it, it solely eats other mollusks. And so it's highly adapted to find other mollusks. It's predator, so it's prey. So it can, it has these appendages on the, the front of its, sensory appendages on the front of its, um, its face where it can detect slime trails and it knows the directionality that the slime was laid down in. And so it knows it it can just go right up and gobble up these snails and it swallows them whole. Or um, if the snail is larger, it has these, this radula, which is a snail tongue that looks like it has daggers on it and it just rips the snail out of the shell and, and eats it. And they're voracious. They, they breed really quickly. And they were introduced here on purpose by the Territorial Department of Agriculture to control the giant African snail, which was also introduced here um, earlier, though, in the 1930s. And it's a, a pretty bad agricultural pest and, and horticultural pest. And so Euglandina was, was brought here, along with a bunch of other stuff that they tried that they just kind of threw out on the landscape to see what stuck. And Euglandina stuck. Works. There won't Only be any consequences. Yeah, it was a horrible mistake, and um, they're not very good at controlling giant African snails, and mm-hmm. they they just spread across the islands like wildfire, 
people, you know, assisted by people. Um, right. And they're now in some of our remote areas. And, and basically when Uglandina move into a site, it's game over for the snails there. They will vacuum up every last living snail for the most part. Um, so they're, they're the worst threat, unlike a rat or a chameleon, which the, the rats, they kind of preferentially target adult large snails. So some of the smaller baby snails and um, smaller species can kind of be ignored by rats. So they're, but Euglandina doesn't discriminate. They will eat every last individual. And so to go back to your second question is what, you know, was there a smoking gun at this Lila site? And yeah, Euglandina were there. Uh, we oh, found Euglandina. But um, this time period between 2015 and, and now, we've had these crazy dry summers that, that we don't know for sure, but I feel is um, severely impacting summit species that are used to having really consistent, cloudy, moist weather in the summer. And we've, we've had, you know, weeks, sometimes several months without significant rain. And when the summit is just open and bright to the sun, and I think these these highly adapted summit species are just getting burned off, off the mountain. So when you combine that with the pressure from Euglandina, it's just like a double whammy. That's really hard for a, a species like Akatanella lila that has a long life and really low reproductive rate and takes five years to reach maturity. They just can't recover when they get hit by these multiple years of, of stressors like that. Uh, so like a lot of species, it sounds like climate change is another factor that's impacting these snails. Yes, it, it's already impacting them. It's not, it's not something that's in the future. It's already, it's already impacting them. And the thing with snails is it's not, the, it's not necessarily the long-term consistent change that we'll see, but it's these intermittent drying periods that are already happening that are kind of a prelude of what might, might come. But it's, yeah, it's these kind of these intermittent periodic random events where we have no rainfall. Like, like this winter, for example, we had no significant rainfall for almost three months during the rain season. Like that's, that's bad for, for summit snails that need really wet conditions. So what do we do about these problems? You know, they don't really have simple solutions. They're complex problems to start with. They require lots of, you know, person hours out in the field, lots of difficult thinking, new ideas, new solutions. What are the, some of the things that you guys are doing at SEP to alleviate some of these issues and also protect the snails that we have now and, and help their populations grow in the future? Yeah, great. Yeah, it's a uh, it's a bit overwhelming. The I mean, they're 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 the species and the populations are disappearing so fast that we're really in a man the lifeboats stage, so to speak. And so our our some of our biggest conservation partners are the Army Natural Resource Resources Program on Oahu, and they've been a, a big proponent of um, developing these fence structures that keep all the known predators out. Even even the snails. Yeah. Wow. See, I, I know a lot about ungulate fences. I didn't realize that you could fence for such small creatures. It makes sense. It kind of feels like a wall and not a fence. It is a wall. Um, so we're pretty good in general at controlling rats in 
in in areas even over over like landscape scale control that that can happen with with some really cool traps automatic traps that we have and in some areas um, rodenticide works well but um euglandina there's no control for that they're a mollusk so any any molluscicide that would kill them would also impact native snails and some kind of delivery system for it because they eat meat it's not, there's not really a, a great delivery system for any kind of poison or, or anything that would control them on a, a large scale. And so the only thing, the only strategy for keeping land snail populations on the landscape is fencing them out and then putting a ton of effort to removing them in these fenced areas and then just trying to keep them out. And so mm-hmm. I'll, I'll describe to you the fences. They're pretty cool. And these were developed by the, the Army Natural Resources Program. And they're a solid wall, like you said. They have a curved hood, similar to um, like a fence you would see for seabirds to keep rodents out. So the slick sides and the the curved hood, gravity works on your sides. The the rodents can't really get up over that hood. They'd have to go upside down and the the hood is smooth and slick. Um, That also works for chameleons. Chameleons can't climb the wall. But to keep uh, the rosy wolf snails out, we have a little gauntlet that they have to cross. And so the first gauntlet is a is an angled flange or a skirt that is at a 15 degree angle around the perimeter of the fence. And the rosy wolf snails get stuck under that. Snails can't really reverse. And the way their shell is shaped, they get wedged under that 15 degree angle. And so that's, that's pretty effective. But if they are able to get over that, there's a, a li- another little skirt or a shelf that, that circles the perimeter of the fence and it has cut copper wire mesh so it's real pokey and it's hard for the snails to get a purchase on gravity also works on on our side there because the snails would have to go upside down across this this pokey wire mesh that doesn't have a lot of surface area so that that is also pretty effective but if they get over that we electrocute them with electrical wires (laughs) Um, so we have two two circuits of wires and um, I know you're envisioning snails that go flying off smoking of the fence but it's a very low, low electrical current, and it just irritates them. And they'll, as they as they make the connection or make a, a circuit, it it electrocutes them, and it it just irritates them, and they they just drop off the fence. So it's not lethal. This is exactly what I was picturing. I was picturing smoking snails, and you know that that moment of electrocution. They they don't have bones or anything like that, so you wouldn't see them when they get like electrocuted. But just I wish they would they would fly off and smoke, but no, that's not the case. Um, right. the, the one thing about this is that the, there's nothing keeping our native snails in. And so we have to have non-lethal barriers. So if a native snail crawls up and over this fence and it hits the electrical fence, it'll get a tickle and it'll probably drop off and it will cruise off on its merry way. Um, so the, the exposures keep things out, but they don't keep things in necessarily. Um, so yeah, so the, the barriers are non-lethal. They're just to discourage. That makes sense. Um, are there are there any um, programs in place to you know uh, directly address the populations of those uh, the invasive snails, the predatory one, and also the the uh, African land snail? You know, when you're when you're out in the field and you see one of these invasive species, what do you do? And what would you recommend you know people do when they're out and they see an invasive snail? I, it could be, it might be a little tough to identify 
you know, some of the smaller snails or tell, um, you know, the, the predatory snail apart from the, the, our native snails, but the, the African snails are really easy to recognize. Uh, and they're markedly larger than the other snails that we have on the island. So what would you recommend? What do you do personally when you see one of these invasive snails? And what do you recommend people to do when they see an invasive snail um, out and about? Yeah, good question. Luckily, giant African snails seem to be uh, restricted to relatively low elevations. So they're mostly in urban areas, agricultural areas. I, I've never seen them up in, in forest areas that up in oh, that's the, good. So, so they're not there, but Uglandina definitely are. Um, so, but if, but giant African snails, they're hosts for rat lungworm and other diseases. So they, they'll eat your garden. Um, I use sluggo in my own yard, which, which does is effective at, at, um, at killing them. So, um, I would recommend people try that maybe to control them around <laughs> locally in their yards. Um, but luckily they're not typically up in, uh, upper elevation areas where our native snails are, but Uglandina definitely are. Um, I, um, dispatch Uglandina when I see them, um, with mm -hmm. my boot or a rock, um, <laughs> I don't want to recommend that people go around smashing snails that they see out in the field because there are native ground snails and um, you could you could be killing a, a native species. So if you're very confident that it's a rosy wolf snail, I'd say have at it and um, smash it. <laughs> but if you're not confident, best to let it be um, just in case it is a native snail. I, and for anybody wondering at home, you can find pictures of all of these snails on the Seth website. Um, it's got like a bunch of stuff in it because they're part of DLNR, but you can find their website super easily by typing SEPP Hawaii into any search bar and that should get you there. And I think there's a bunch of pictures, there's a bunch of cool stuff on their website. Definitely check it out. Thanks. So thanks for the plug. We're, we're trying to make it really useful with lots of pictures and, and information on a lot of our native species. So if people are writing school reports or our kids are writing school reports, they can, they can find photos they can use and they can find um, good information on our website that's accurate. So I was poking around on your website earlier and there's all these descriptions of the different snail families and species and one particularly caught my eye, uh, Endodontidae. Uh, this is a, a, a family that's been uh, heavily impacted. They're one of the, the more at-risk families, it seems. Uh, and so I was wondering what are the qualities of the species that that makes them more at risk or, or more vulnerable to certain uh you know invasive species or, or habitat loss and then on the flip side what are qualities of some of the other species that allow them to be more resilient in the face of these invasive predators uh and you know dealing with habitat loss and climate change and all the other things that these little snails have to deal with on a daily basis yeah, I'm, gl I'm glad you brought up Endodontidae. So they're they're a, a neat group of species, a neat family. They're a very old family, an ancient family of land snails that seems to have had its last stand in the Pacific Islands. Um, the majority of the extant species or, or recently extant species occurred on islands out in the Pacific. They, um, they're actually very hardy species in, in that they they typically occur in in relatively harsh conditions for snails. So they're some of the species that um, can ex exist in really dry areas. They, um, there's only two known species left in the island. One of them is on Oahu, 
and one is on Nihoa Island, which if you if you know of Nihoa, it's a rock island in the northwestern Hawaiian Islands. And these these snails are are persisting there in and are highly evolved to live in grass clumps. Nothing else, just these little clumps of grass, and they live down at the very bottom. Their shells are very thin. They almost look like cinnamon rolls, is how I would describe them. So they're they're flattened little discs, and they're they're able to wedge into really like tight spaces to stay um, out of the sun and to stay in in areas that are um, are shady or wet. They're 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 really beautiful, neat species, but they've they were hit really early on pretty badly. Um, and that is likely to do because many of them occur close to the ground, so they're, they're ground dwelling. And many of them were in areas that are um, highly transformed landscapes, like coastal strand or, or lower, lower elevation areas. But um, in general, ground snails are highly vulnerable. And um, another, another group of species, the Amastridae, are, are predominantly ground dwelling. And they um, have had some of the highest extinction rates out of all 13 families. And um, so they, they had over 300 species and they're down to 20 now. And most of them are, are from single population. That's really interesting that some of the same factors that influence uh, bird species resiliency here in Hawaii do the same for snails. I think it speaks a lot to, you know, the, the impact of island biogeography and the way that species evolve here and just the nature of evolution without, you know, a consistent threat. And then when you introduce a threat, you know, evolution just doesn't work on a scale anywhere near fast enough to respond to it. Um, so ground dwelling, uh, one, not great strategy uh, for being resilient against invasive species. What, what is a good strategy? Um, a good strategy is having a, a fast lifespan, so maturing pretty quickly, and uh, a fecundity, so the um, birth rate, so the, the, how, how many babies do you make? Um, snails that can mature more quickly and have a higher birth rate typically can um, persist a little bit better it, um, with predators. So, for example... Um, are acatinelline snails, our large tree snails that everyone thinks of when you say tree snail. They, as I mentioned, they can live 20 years, about. Um, they take five years to reach maturity. They give birth to one offspring at a time. Of, and depending on the species, it's, it's like around one to five offspring per year. So really low birth rate. A giant African snail or a snail from a continental area where there's mammalian predators will mature in, you know, under a year, much, much, much faster than a year and they'll make or they'll lay thousands of eggs over their brief life and so you know they're they're taking the evolutionary strategy of just throwing a tons of babies out there and um hopefully some will survive whereas our tree snails put a lot of energy into like one healthy baby at a time that's relatively big uh and you know when there's no predators that strategy works works really well on an island like this with that historically had no predators, but two very different evolutionary strategies. And, and the one, our, our most, you know, our, our tree snail strategy does not work well um, under some of the th new threats that we have. So for some of these species that are investing so much energy and time into a small number of offspring, it must make captive breeding uh, much more difficult. 
Yeah. So good segue. So our other like man, the lifeboats strategy is captive rearing. And I mean, it's kind of out of desperation. Like we have no other options. Um, Fencing units, we need a lot of them. They're expensive to build. They're logistically challenging in remote areas. Um, We need, we have, we have around 11 of them currently functioning across, across multiple islands. We need like at minimum, like 50 functioning across islands and we don't have that so the only other method we have when when species are tanking is to collect individuals and bring them into captivity and some of the experiences that our team and our colleagues have of experience like you know these snails just disappearing in front of your eyes have really uh, made it made us much more brave to bring things in so we're we're much more willing to be like okay like we got to stop messing around time to bring them in and we we do that now, um, and we're trying to build capacity so that we can do that more um, when, when it's needed. And so, um, in captivity, like you said, it is very challenging. So, committing to bringing in a, the last few individuals of a species, it's a decades-long commitment before that species could be put back into the wild. Um, you know, with a generation time of five years and a birth rate that's so low. You know, if you have a very low number of founders, you're, you're talking about a five to 10 year turnaround before you might even have enough individuals to, to start putting them back. So it's a, it's a commitment, a long-term commitment. Um, we do have other species though in the Amastridae family that mature in under two years and they give birth to babies every two weeks. And um, so those, those species have done really well in captivity and we're able to get numbers up really fast, um, you know, in a couple years versus a decade. So it depends on the species in question, but it does make captive rearing very difficult. And um, captive rearing also has some inherent dangers associated with it. You know, we have, for example, in our lab, we have we have um, around forty species from five islands in a in a modular trailer, um, and they we don't have redundancy. Like many of the species, only exist in this trailer now, or many of the populations we have. And so um, keeping high densities of, of animals like that, there's pathogens that, are, you know, you have the risk of pathogens coming in, you have the risk of equipment failure or human error causing some kind of decline or a mortality event in the lab. And because, you know, it takes so long for them to reach maturity and, and, and they make so few babies, they're really precious. So they're not expendable. So we put an incredible amount of effort trying to control risk to the best we can in that kind of an environment. Uh, it makes sense when you're dealing with populations that have such small numbers, the value of an individual just goes way through the roof. Um, I know that there are you know, some populations with really no, low numbers out there, but you're, you're the expert. You know, what are kind of the lowest low populations that we've got that we're dealing with. But also on the flip side of that, what are some of our land snails that are actually doing kind of okay? Or are any doing kind of okay? Good question. <laughs> I I think most land snail species in the islands are experiencing declines um, of some, some sort or another. So I, I don't necessarily think there's any species that are going to necessarily escape uh, unharmed through all the pressures we have, but but teeny tiny, there there are there are species that are are relatively small, 
that um, are distributed over larger landscape areas, and they're not necessarily that much of a target for some of the predators. So I, I do think there are are some species that will will persist despite the predators we have. Um, whether they can withstand climate change, I'm not sure. But um, but your question, going back, what are what's a rare species? Um, I'll give you an example. So Acatonella fulgens is a beautiful tree snail species from the southern Kotoal. So it existed in the mountainous areas, relatively low elevation mountainous areas um, surrounding the town of Honolulu or the city of Honolulu. Um, they're often seen in lei. That's one of the, the all of the kahuli lei that I've seen, all, that most of them have Acatonella fulgens in them. They're real beautiful. They were very accessible. They were hit very hard. So Uglandina was introduced in um, Manoa Valley uh, originally. And so the southern Ko'olau, the southern mountains surrounding um, Honolulu and Manoa Valley were hit really early on by Uglandina. They're just, the mountains are real steep there. They go up so you have like urban areas and then these real giant forested areas that are very close. And so the Uglandina just made it there really quickly versus more remote areas on the islands where there's a little bit of a time lag. And when I started in um, 2012, working for the Department of Land and Natural Resources, there was one population of Acatonella fulgens left. And uh, they existed in these tall, invasive guava trees down in this little stream bed. And so we, at, at the time, so in 2012, 2013, there were dozens of them that you could count at any one time. We started monitoring them. Um, there were tons of Uglandina in the area, so we started um, smearing the trunks of these guava trees with an inordinate amount of um, petroleum jelly and salt to try and keep Uglandina from crawling up these trees. Guava have smooth trunks, so you could do that. Mm -hmm. um, none of that was really working. In, in 2016, um, we, we got our lab and started having the capacity to bring animals in. Right before we were really able to bring them in, there, we had this big rain event on Oahu and the mountain slumped at this site. And um, it's like classic conservation biology where you have a stochastic event that takes out the last population. And it, all the trees at this site, or the majority of them were knocked down. And there were six snails left that we could find and most of them were on the ground. Um, I, I literally think this species was in, within days or hours of going extinct, but because we were checking this site on a weekly basis, we happened to go in after this, this event and we were able, to, we pulled them um, out of the wild and uh, we, we actually didn't have the lab completely set up at the time and we kept them in a, in a tiny cage around a single tree in a secret spot. Um, uh, <laughs> in the mountains there. And then when the lab was ready, we brought them in. And um, since, since that event, we go back to this site and scour the area um, periodically to see if there's any, anything persisting or any babies that maybe grew up and are now detectable. And I believe we found two more over the past five years since that, four years since that happened. Um, and so that population was, uh, you know, on the very brink. We had just a handful of adults. Um, so that's, that's what we're dealing with in a lot of instances, like these populations that are down to less than, less than 10 animals left. 
that's actually a bit of an uplifting story when you think about it, because you guys were able to, you know, just either by happenstance or by, you know, uh, virtue of your diligence, you were able to save that species before they were completely gone. Yeah, I, I mean, it was, I think it was just luck, honestly, that we, it just happened, the interval, the, the monitoring interval happened to land very soon after this happened. And um, we were able to intervene. Um, I think a little bit more time, a couple more days, if we had have waited, we likely that some of those snails that got knocked down on the ground would have been gobbled up. And then there would have been even less, less individuals left. Really, just it's just crazy. Like the whole valley was fine except this tiny little spot where the snails were. It's just it's just random. It's just a stochastic event that. But but yeah, it is uplifting. Um, we now have uh, over fifty of them in the lab, so their numbers are going up, and they're because they existed in such low elevation areas. They're actually one of our most recoverable species on Oahu under climate change projections because they existed in drier, lower elevation areas. And there's going to be more of that across the whole island. So, um, so it would be a, a huge shame to lose a species like that, that, that actually has a lot of recovery potential. Well, it's great to hear that you guys have been able to increase their numbers in the lab. You know, those types of success stories or, or just uplifting stories. They're really important in conservation, not just for, you know, everybody, but for, especially for conservationists, we deal with so much doom and gloom in our daily life. And we've talked a lot of doom and gloom on the podcast. So I like to finish off every episode on a positive note. Um, so aside from, you know, this success story uh, and this, the story of you saving these snails, what else is going right for the snails right now? And aside from that, what else is going right for you as a scientist and a conservationist and as a person? Because oftentimes people forget that scientists are people too, and we live lives just like everybody else. So I want to hear some good stuff about the snails and about you, David. What's going on? What's your positive note to end on? Yeah, so positive note. So I think we're reaching this inflection point with birds, with plants, with snails. You know, enough of us are screaming at the top of our lungs like, like, hello, this is it. Like we we have to do something now. It's like, like, like <laughs> take a shit or get off the pot. Like um, <laughs> we, we got to do it. And I, I think the broader public is realizing that. I think funders are realizing that. There's been some great news for forest birds recently. 14 million invested in to trying to save um, for to trying to save the the Kauai forest birds and um, some of the Maui forest birds. And so I, I I think people are recognizing that this is urgent. This isn't this is this isn't something we can we can study more. This isn't something we can just wait around it, like this this extinction event is happening now. And I, I feel like there's some, I, and I think a lot of people are feeling this way. There's some more momentum now, um, I think. And I think broadly the public is understanding that, that this is critical. Like we're at a critical junction. Like we are either going to lose an incredible amount of biodiversity that doesn't have to be lost because we have tools to prevent it. Um, and I, I'm really hopeful that, that we'll start turning the tide and instead of 
these extinction stories, we're going to have more recovery stories that, that we can tell. Um, for snails, um, we've, um, we've partnered with Dr. Melissa Price and one of her graduate students, and uh, we got some funding from the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service, and we were able to, to do some climate change modeling for snails to predict, you know, where snails on Oahu, we, we did it for a limited number of species kind of to test if this, if this works. And, um, and it's not all doom and gloom for the snails. So some, some species on Oahu are completely pushed off the island, some upper elevation species. They're not going to have any habitable range left. But there are, there's range that opens up on other islands that could potentially accept these animals. Um, and some species on Oahu, like I mentioned, Akantanella fulgens, that, that occurs or historically occurred in lower elevation, drier areas, actually has habitat open up. That, that they didn't. So it's, it's not all doom and gloom. We're, we're, we're starting to be able to wrap our minds around some of these threats and we're able to start planning for them. And that, that really motivates me and gives me some hope that, you know, we're not just um, taking shots in the dark here and trying things. We're actually, we have good data and good modeling effort to, to act and make good decisions moving into the future. Um, we've, we've worked uh, so captive propagation over the past uh, has been ongoing over the past 20 years. Dr. Michael Hadfield started a lab at the university. It doesn't exist anymore, but but he started rearing these snails back in the 80s. Um, the Bishop Museum folks are, and affiliated researchers, um, Dr. Daniel Chung, started rearing amostrid snails, you know, 30 years ago, and developed techniques. And then um, this generation of malacologists has. Kind of built on those efforts and we've we're expanding it and um i i'm proud to say that at, at this point we we got a grant last year from the u.s fish and wildlife service a five hundred thousand dollar grant to partner with the zoo and the bishop museum to beef up captive rearing efforts and start a lab at the zoo a fully functioning lab and a fully functioning lab at the bishop museum and uh, the impetus is that we would we would be splitting po vulnerable populations into multiple locations so that if something bad like a pathogen or equipment failure happens at one site, it's not game over for a species. There's redundancy. And um, the plus side is that we also are able to generate more individuals back in at, for reintroduction back into the wild. And um, an, an extra added bonus is the zoo and the Bishop Museum are public facing institutions so people will actually get to see this work. We're currently at DLNR. This all takes place, you know, out of the public eye. People can't see it. So I think that will help build some momentum as well as, and get people excited about it, to be able to see it. And um, last year, we were able to release over 7,000 snails into protected areas on Oahu and on Maui um, from, from all three institutions, from the zoo, from the Bishop Museum, and, and our DLNR lab. So that makes me really happy. Um, and yeah, that's awesome. That's a huge number. Yeah, it's really positive, and it um, and this extra funding from the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service to to beef up these efforts at the zoo and the Bishop Museum, I I think are going to help save species one hundred percent. It's not a good strategy to have forty species that don't exist in the wild in a single spot. We've had to do it with the resources we've had. You know, we made a strategic decision. We it's riskier to leave them out where they're just going to disappear in the wild. Um, so we've worked really hard to get to this point where we can spread them around. And I'm, I'm relieved and, um, 
and very happy that we'll be able to to partner with these institutions and and get this rolling. It just generates more momentum and. Um, we're really working hard to bring in more partners like this and, and get more people working on these problems. So, and that's kind of happening. So it's neat to watch. Ah, that's great to hear. You know, I, I guess as, as conservationist myself, you know, we live for these success stories and, you know, we want to see this positive change. That's why we devote our lives to this type of work. So hearing it's it happening now you know right in front of all of us but also that you know the general public could have access to these species you know that's yeah, get to see them very hard life yeah so so that makes me really proud and i i um our lab now we have such a great team between the the bishop museum has has a whole team of malacologists and student assistants and um and we do and we participate in kupu so we bring in kupu interns we're reaching this point where we have kind of a lot of people now, a big team, multi-institution team that are working on snails. The Army Natural Resources Program has has teams of people that are working on snail conservation. And so I I think we're, we're generating a lot of momentum. And I really love going into our laboratory. They don't even need me anymore. There's We've got, the, there's, they're the experts now. Um, and so at, before, when we first started the lab, you know, it was just me and um, and uh, just a handful of other people trying to do this. And now we have a whole lab team and student assistants and interns, and they're all like, there's just snail experts now. I just go in and I kind of just get in the way. I feel like it's, ri- which really makes me happy <laughs> right. because they're, they're just running with this. And um, that is such a, a good feeling to see that, you know, you're not alone and there's, there's all these people that really care too and are smart and are thinking, have new ideas, and um, are just really pushing this forward really fast. Um, so that that makes me really, really proud and, and happy to see. Yeah, that's really good to hear. Uh, well, before we sign off, I want to give you an opportunity to plug whatever website or organization or institution or social media, whatever you got. Here's your opportunity for some free space. Go ahead, plug away. Cool, thanks. Um, Definitely check out the SEP website. It is under construction. We're working on it, trying to make it a, a resource with accurate information. That there, There's a lot of information out there, and not all of it is current or accurate. So we're trying to make a website that people can come to. If they're doing reports, if they're curious, they can come and get the real information. That's, that's correct. Um, the Bishop Museum has um, some website materials that I should, you should definitely check out, their malacology program. Um, the zoo, I, I would definitely say in the next few years, as we build the program at the zoo and the Bishop Museum, stay tuned and, and look out for, for these snails and go visit them and, and look at them and, and watch the people taking care of them. So that, that'll be huge. So um, it'll be one of the first times that school kids and the general public can just go and, and actually see the species in real life. And um, so keep, keep, stay tuned on that. That'll be happening over the next two years. We'll be building up those programs. Um, I think that's all I can think of right now. If you want to get involved in conservation in general, the Department of Land and Natural Resources holds uh, volunteer trips to different uh, management sites across the island from coastal areas all the way up to mountainous areas um, to remove invasive species, weeds. We occasionally hold volunteer trips um, for helping us look for euglandina in and around our predator-proof fence sites. 
And so there's lots of opportunities to get involved. Um, if you're a young person that's just finishing college um, or, or even if you haven't yet, Kupu is, a, you mentioned Kupu earlier. Um, Kupu is a great program. Um, we take uh, interns from their conservation re research and development program, leadership, CLDP, whatever the acronym is for that. Um, so we, we treat, we treat these interns as staff. So they come on and they do everything that we do and it's great training for them. Um, and it's a great opportunity for us to impart our knowledge on new generations of people. So if you are, um, if you are looking for a career change or looking to start your career, those are great opportunities, uh, to, to jump in and get really good experience. Yeah, that's awesome. I'm really glad to hear that. And Thanks again, David, for coming on the show. You're a wonderful guest. I had a great time talking to you. Uh, and thank you, audience, for listening. As always, uh, please go check out our website, www.hiscb.org. You can join our uh, chapter. It's free for students. Uh, it's only $10 for professionals. It's very cheap. But uh, in addition to all the awesome resources that David mentioned, we also host volunteer events and provide opportunities for people to get involved in conservation here in Hawaii. So check out our website, HISCB.org. Check out SEP's website, uh, Google search SEPP Hawaii. That's the easiest way to get there. And get out there and do some good in the world. If you got the time, if you got the energy, if you got the space, what's stopping you? But Thanks so much for listening. I really appreciate it. Mahalo, and I'll see you next time.